Hey everyone, welcome back to another week of Concessions with Jared, myself, and a special guest, Drew Ferguson. This week we're covering a film that I can personally relate to, Moneyball. I chose Moneyball since it sits in this very rare circle of baseball films that aren't completely saccharine or cliched or just kind of tiring to watch. Also, that's why I invited my friend Drew onto the pod since we both played college baseball together back in the day, as well as moved on to play professional baseball through most of our 20s. We dig into how Moneyball reflects our lived experiences, as well as getting Jared's perspective as someone who justifiably doesn't spend his free time parsing through the complexities of advanced baseball statistics. From here, we chat broadly about breaking with traditional thought, the limitations of economic thinking, and how athletes and artists share some common struggles when it comes to trying to achieve their dreams. If you've been enjoying what we do so far, please feel free to drop a like, review, or a follow on the podcast wherever you do your listening. Also, you can find me on X at Dan Concedes, and Jared can be found at Threads at Jared Concessions. Uh, this is important stuff because we use this data mined from this episode to determine whether or not Drew will be a projectable prospect to bring back to future episodes. So we really need to make sure that the statistics are accurate and line up well. Uh, as always, thank you so much for spending some time with us, and we hope you enjoy our chat about 2011's Moneyball. What's up, dudes? Welcome to Concession Sports Talk, and this week we're talking Moneyball. I'm Dan. And it's your boy, Jared. <laughs> and we're going to get down and dirty, no filter, not giving a fuck about what we're talking about with this episode. Okay, I already I already hate this. <laughs> We've got a third conceder here right now for the first time in quite a while. Dan, why don't you introduce Drew? Actually, welcome to Concessions. It's a movie podcast. We ain't doing sports. Well, we're tangentially doing sports here. But uh, yeah, so we brought on a very, very special guest, a good friend of mine that I've been uh, known now for 12 years by my math. Um a fellow member who has served in the baseball world for quite a while, uh, Drew Ferguson. Drew, say hi to the dozens of people on the other end. Hello, dozens. Uh, my name is Drew. As Dan mentioned, I've been a, a longtime friend. Uh, Dan and I played college baseball together. I went through um, some professional ranks for a while, so I have a lot of comments about a movie like Moneyball. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to provide uh, some semblance of expertise, but mostly just shoot the shit and uh, see where the conversation goes. An expert shit shooter, if I've ever seen one. But yeah, as we normally start things off, uh, we'll go around the horn. Uh, another baseball term there for the kids at home with um, Jared. What are you drinking over there? Yeah, well, I still have some of these absolutely marvelous cutty lime margaritas from the great town of san diego uh so i'm gonna finish up this lime margarita before moving on up the west coast to pelican brewing on the oregon coast this is their american style hefeweizen and i'll Ooh. save that for after the margarita because i learned this adage as a boy liquor before beer you're in the clear dan what are you drinking which now as a professional uh, alcohol serviceman Kind of not true, but uh, it's it's a bit of a wide sale. Well, mostly with like mixing liquors, it doesn't make your hangover worse. But it's more like if you gain a, a foundation with beer and then hit the fucking accelerator with liquor, yeah, you're in trouble. But anyways, uh, I am drinking neither liquor nor beer. I've got uh, a nice 
crisp, dry Pinot Grigio from Pinette. I had to bring the bottle over here because there's no way I would remember the actual label. Uh, it was just at the local grocery store, and I just wanted something uh, nice and dry on a wonderful, sunny evening here in San Diego. Uh, so, yeah, just a little uh, a great pairs very well with the baseball game and Pinot Grigio, as everyone knows. Um, Drew, what are you sipping on? Uh, so I was slightly coerced by one of our hosts to pick something up. I, I was actually sipping on some a West Coast classic, a Lagunitas IPA earlier this evening, but I was uh, strong-armed into picking up a bottle of Bullet Bourbon on the way back. So we're into the hard stuff and uh, yeah, a classic Ken- Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Mm, delightful. And Drew, we'll just uh, we'll go round or uh, what is it, snake style? I forget what kind of draft of it is. Snake draft. Um, and let you go first on the uh, within recent memory within the last week or so. Any like movies, books, video games, experiences you had that would be uh, worth mentioning to the dozens. Uh, I recently revisited Brave New World. Alice mm. Huxley got into some dystopian stuff, you know, as memory serves, you know, people talk about 1984 all the, all the time these days. And, you know, people claim that Brave New World was more prophetic in, you know, how it should be remembered. And I guess I would say my experience with it was, it was a mixed review, I would say, but I definitely think that there's some, some interesting points there about choosing to self, you know, inoculation of the masses, so to speak. We're all inundated in our own dopamine hits as we talk about our our different beverages of choice. So it was a fun read. The ending is controversial, I think, to some, and definitely worth talking about. But that's not what we're here to talking about. But yeah, it was it was it was fun to revisit a a childhood uh, staple, so to speak. Yeah, it's one of those where it's like you you should have read it by now. I yeah, I did 1984 and Brave New World when I was like 21 or something like that because I never read them in high school. And I always liked Brave New World a little more. I don't know if I read it now, nine years later, how I'd feel about it, but I have fond memories of it. And I like Aldous Huxley mostly because he read a book or wrote a uh, a whole book about how cool drugs are. <laughs> um, let's see. For me, what did I? Oh, I I watched a, a nasty little movie. I don't know if you guys have seen this. A kind of a forgotten Scorsese movie, Cape Fear. That is a uh, gnarly little one. It's like super pulpy, a little overly dramatic, bordering on camp. But uh, Robert De Niro's given some uh, strong Joker energy the whole time. And, you know, I'm always here to get Joker pilled a little bit. Have you guys seen I it? Would, I have seen it, and I would call that Sideshow Bob energy. Um, <laughs> but only because they literally did an entire parody episode of the Simpsons on the Simpsons of Cape fear where sideshow Bob is De Niro and the Simpsons are the family and they move out on a houseboat so that sideshow Bob won't kill Bart. Mm. But he uh, sets the boat adrift and is about to kill Bart, except Bart asks him to sing some Broadway show tunes to him. And sideshow Bob gets caught up in that so much that uh, they, they're able to drift ashore and he gets arrested. <laughs> Uh, that is a forgotten Scorsese. I, I feel like when folks are kind of listing off the the classics, that one's oft overlooked. Yeah, and it's his follow up to Goodfellas too. So you think that's it probably happen- why? Yeah, it's just kind of left in the uh, lost in the wash right after him. Uh, Jared, what about you? Anything of a uh, firm note? Yeah. So I started to get a leg up on uh, some f- some future episode research, and I started to dig really deeply into 2001 A Space Odyssey, 
by reading The Sentinel by Arthur C. Clarke. It's like a five or six page short story that is the uh, the the precursor to 2001. And a lot of the initial ideas around like, the monolith and what it means are from that short story. And then I also started reading a behind the scenes book that's sort of half biography of Kubrick as well as Clark, half kind of making of 2001 the film and the book, for those who don't know, they were written in tandem or created in tandem rather than Kubrick's usual thing, which would be taking a really established popular book and kind of morphing it to his aesthetic. Uh, he, This is one of the only times he really collaborated with the author. And that whole creative process between these two giants who were both extraordinarily successful separately already, but in very different ways, kind of coming together and just the the sparks that flew, obviously. A uh, pretty good read. It's just called Space Odyssey. I don't recall the name of the author right now, but if you have any, even a passing interest in the making of movies, which I assume you do, if you're listening to this, check that out. Wait, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I knew Arthur C. Clarke like, uh, had a written version of the story. I didn't realize it was six pages. I thought Arthur well, C. No, Clarke no. was the one that read, wrote the, the novelization of the film. The Sentinel is the name of the short story mm. that they started used as a starting point and then expanded into the full-length novel 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, okay. Uh, and the, the the screenplay was written in tandem with the novel. And uh, the novel was actually released, I, I believe, six months after the, the film. Um, is the monolith actually a giant uh, Margot Robbie in the novelization? <laughs> it's a glass pyramid on the moon. That oh. while we're on, while while we're mentioning Barbie, we should mention atomic weapons because they do reveal <laughs> that uh, once they the human beings hit the glass monolith with atomic weapons, that's when the extraterrestrials are alerted to our presence. Uh, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. that From this point forward, every. Every movie discussion devolves into either Bar Barbie or Oppenheimer exclusive. <laughs> All right, let's just get right into Moneyball. Uh, so it is a 2011 film directed by Bennett Miller. Uh, the screenplay was co-written or group written. Can you say co-written if it's more than two? I don't know. Uh, by Stephen uh, Zalian, Aaron Sorkin, and Stan Shervin. Uh, it's adapted by a book by Michael Lewis of the same name. And starring some of the top billing stars are Brad Pitt, you got Jonah Hill, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Robin Wright, Chris Pratt, and Stephen Bishop are some you know bigger names that would be attached to that. Um, Jared, uh, kick us off because you're the only one in the room that actually read the book that it's based on. Um, are yeah. there any just or just kick us off in general with previous relationship with Moneyball, with sports movies, with baseball movies, um, what or with the director, anything like that, just any context going in when you sat down and watched this last week. Yeah, I guess mine will be a little different than the two of you being actual baseball players, but I had never seen Moneyball before. I had been aware of it. Obviously, it made a big splash, you know, nominated for a bunch of awards that year. I am not a sports guy almost at all. Like, of course, you know, growing up a boy, it was, I, you know, a lot of sports knowledge was just imparted on me, but my older brother, major sports guy, uh, huge baseball fan, collected 
San Diego Padres jerseys closet just full of like the actual, you know, really nice jerseys that that you can buy. And when I was a teenager, he was in his like second year of college or something like that. That's when Petco Park opened for the first time. And he took me to the opening game at Petco Park. Oh, wow. And so uh, that is kind of the romantic thing about baseball in, in my mind is my older brother. And in fact, just to take that one step further, growing up, he's who's always been into statistics and pouring over them. And, you know, he had books about baseball statistics that he would just read for pleasure. I remember in high school, he took statistics instead of calculus. So he could, you know, be nerdier still about baseball. And one of the the jobs that he's had as an adult after uh, finishing, you know, his, his higher education is he was a copy editor for um, Turner sports where you know, he's copy editing articles about baseball statistics and pro wrestling mostly. But yeah, I, uh, I, I so I've got this ro- little bit of romanticism about baseball, but almost no knowledge at all. But I did read Moneyball this past week by Michael Lewis. And so I'm prepared to talk about how the movie does it justice or how it doesn't or how the movie improves upon it. But going in, I try to be a sponge for whatever movie we're talking about, right? I try to understand the subject more. And this was one where I was on almost a complete blank slate and now I've just been living in this world of the 2002 Oakland A's for the last week. <laughs> uh, as, as are we all, really, in our own special ways. Yeah, mine's mine's uh, similar in some ways. Uh, that ba- I'm actually, other than the fact that I literally played college and professional baseball, like I'm actually not a big baseball guy. Uh, I say that while I'm literally wearing like a baseball jersey and a baseball hat, but it's kind of for a bit. But I was, you know, obviously inundated in the culture of it because I was part of it. But it wasn't really something like I didn't really follow a lot of the players. I wasn't I was always the guy that like knew the least about what was going on on a particular season and like, you know, mildly chided for that. Um, Like if you ask me right now, like I live I live in San Diego. I couldn't name more than maybe five or six players on the Padres, Uh, although I do like going to Petco Park. It's a fun time. Um, But it was never like. It was kind of it was an activity I really enjoyed and something that, you know, defined a vast majority of my life growing up and into my adulthood. But it wasn't like a I was never like a huge obsessive fan about it uh, past like my own performance and my own the own little world of the team I was on or the leagues I was in and stuff like that. So a movie like Moneyball. Well, and then backing up into baseball movies, that's why baseball movies in general kind of pissed me off because they're as someone who is in it. uh Holy shit, baseball movies get what playing baseball is like really wrong. I never felt like any sort of experience in uh, baseball movies like reflected anything to do with what my life was like through uh, baseball. Even a lot of it was like it was just, you know, a whole cavalcade of cliches just getting thrown at you about baseball because, you know, baseball is America's pastime. So it's such like a cultural monument that it attaches to so easily. But like culturally based like when you're actually in it it's not really like that in a lot of ways but you know oh shocker someone who is in something complains about the movies portrayed about that uh same uh sphere so that's not anything unusual but yeah i I, that's going into moneyball and why i chose it it's moneyball sort of the exception to the rule in many ways where it's about baseball but only kind of incidentally it's a it's a good movie first and a movie about baseball kind of second which is why I want to pick it and why I brought Drew on because Drew's same as me played through college. He played longer into baseball than I did. Um, and it's definitely a bit more of a stat loser 
than I was. So the idea of sabermetrics and Moneyball and things like that was something he was. We would just chat about on our own, anyways. Um, so uh, without stealing too much of your thunder, Drew, give me a hit us up with your context going into uh, Moneyball. Yeah, I'll go ahead and give the the full bona fide stat loser context. <laughs> I guess I played baseball all my life from basically age four until I was thirty. So I've seen it at every level, amateur and professional. As I mentioned in the introduction, um, you know, I played with Dan in college. We've had many conversations about baseball. I guess I am a little bit of a an outlier, like versus the normal player, because uh, so I was a big Braves fan growing up, and I read a bunch of forums about, like, I don't know, just out of super fandom and you know, potentially just hyper fixation on specific topics relevant to you know my favorite pastime or sport you know whatever started to understand some of these things and then i happened to be drafted by the astros in in 2015 and they're kind of like um an example of basically the new money ball so there's you know this is obviously capturing a, a a point in time and you know it's it's interesting to hear or like to to see a a depiction of a a revolutionary moment in in a sport or whatever but i'm i'm more interested in kind of the the evolution of the sport over time and kind of in encapsulating as dan mentioned kind of like what the experience is actually like um, for different players and kind of um, encompassing exactly what's what's going on what should we care about what's boring nerd stuff and what's actually like interesting about this as a microcosm of how people are, how employment is and that sort of thing. Um, I do have a lot of like anecdotal experience with this sort of stuff. And I am very much a nerd in, in, in this realm. So I can, you know, give some, you know, various stories and like actually break down how some of it works. I don't know how, how much we're going to get into it. I'll also be interested to hear about, um, you know, Jared's experience reading the book especially like so freshly um, i'm curious i've never read the book but i am very very familiar with billy bean and the whole project surrounding it and you know, kind of the the umbrella of Moneyball in baseball not so sp- specific to this point in time for the oakland a's but just like understanding why this was made a movie like why is this interesting at all why is this like a a topic worth discussing and if you're not a super baseball fan it might it might not be that interesting but um to me you have some you have some human elements you have like the the condensing of certain work aspects into something that you can measure baseball is a very measurable sport because there are very few outcomes so like it's very easy to like extrapolate certain stats and without you know I'll, i don't want to get into the weeds right now but that's kind of my my standpoint. I have a background here. Um, I'll be happy to add some color here and there. And uh, yeah, I'm interested to see Jared. What I don't know if we want to get into this yet, but uh, Jared, what was your what was what was reading the book like? What was what was your takeaway? What was your general experience like? Yeah, give it well, a little but, compare and contrast here. Yeah, well, the before we even get into a comparison with the movie. Again, I'd never seen Moneyball. I'd seen trailers. I, you know, watched the Oscars that year, so I knew that it was a big deal. But for whatever reason, I just didn't get around to it. At the time, 
So actually, over the last you know 12 years since the movie came out, I have had this sort of inflated picture in my head of what is this thing that the early aughts Oakland A's figured out that nobody else did. And I was, I went into it prepared to like, okay, they're going to throw some like very complex math at me. They're going to throw some very complex concepts at me that, you know, that maybe I won't understand. And then I start to read it. And when I started to realize that the entire revelation is just they, that they actually paid attention to stats <laughs> was mind boggling to me. <laughs> I thought that that should, that would, I, I just assumed that that was the baseline of how things were done for decades. And that the, 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 you know, the 2002 A's figured out something revolutionary. And I, I suppose they did, but I had no idea that all the way up until, you know, 2000 ish, well, at least as portrayed in the book and the movie, and we can get into why it's a little bit bullshit, but just the fact that, that old school scouting was still taking place, like, you know, his ass looks good in the pants. Pay him eight million dollars. <laughs> like, was the thing? It just was absolutely mind blowing to me. But, but then, like, kind of going on as you know, as it as it went on further and further, and they started to really describe why it might actually not be totally obvious why on base percentage should be the sort of north star of how you're picking players. It started to make more sense, and it did start to feel a little bit more revolutionary to me, but. Yeah, the, I, I was expecting some like epiphany that you know someone had that would just blow my mind, and uh, just the fact that it, it was so so kind of rudimentary seeming by today's standards uh, was the first thing that stood out to me. But then the book itself is a page turner. It definitely reads like a thriller. It's got this character study right in the middle of it that makes it seem more like a novel than a nonfiction book. Just the fact that Bean is like such a interesting dude and he's got these uh sort of tragic flaws to him it, it seems like it's a little bit romanticized and it particularly in the movie even more so than the book but the book is great if you haven't read it, i would i would actually recommend it to both of you guys just because it's a fun read and it does read almost like a work of fiction so are there long chapters of him just driving in the truck and brooding no, that's definitely an invention of the movie. <laughs> the movie goes a lot longer of a way to sort of make these attempts to humanize Bean. All the stuff with his daughter, not present in the book. Mm. Um, but, the, you know, if you want an entire chapter, you know, just um, about, oh, what's the name of the, the pitcher with the with the weird sidearm, Chad? Um, oh, the submarine guy? Name? Oh, that's not Hatterberg. Hatterberg's a, uh, yeah. His, his, name is, his name is irrelevant. These are cogs in the machine, remember? That is true. Interchangeable. <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, yeah, the, the book is a little bit less focused on Bean, obviously, because it's not Brad Pitt playing him in the book. Still, it, it, it's very cinematic already on the page, and it's sort of odd that it took them like eight years to actually make a movie. Oh, Chad Bradford, by the way. Chad Chad Bradford, yeah. Um, sorry to Chad Bradford if you're listening to this. We, you're an interchangeable cog, what can I say? Yeah, uh, that, yeah that is interesting about... Um, you know, the trying to humanize Billy Bean and all this, and especially in a book that, and that was going to be my main question for your unique perspective on this is this is a movie that takes something that seems very, for no pun intended, inside baseball and 
projects it out to people who it's not for people who are familiar with the sport or who already have uh, base knowledge of saber metrics and stuff like that. And it, it's it's quite a quite miraculous that they can pull off an interesting movie about people who discovered that stats are good. Um, and to to your point about like it's kind of it seems rudimentary now. It's like pretty much any. I don't know, paradigm shift in thought or quote unquote revolution in thought, like seems so fucking obvious to us today. Like, like, I mean, take like Darwin, uh, for example, like that just seems so clear and basic to us today. That's like, Hey, things like adapt to their environment. Uh, but you know, someone had to figure it out. I will say baseball is like, I think an outlier in, in some ways, as far as like it's traditionalist rooting in, in so far as like, the conventional wisdom is like the wisdom. Mm. So like I can understand dramatizing, pushing back about it, you know, with some relatively rudimentary statistics, like don't get out. That's good. Getting out is bad. Like you can break it down like that. But the reality is that it's more of like a, it's almost like an internal culture war more than it is anything about like running an effective business or organization or anything like that. I think outside, like outside of the baseball paradigm, like any other business I think is going to be like moving past this stuff, like way more efficiently um, from a maximizing productivity standpoint. Yeah. It's just like, there's, as we've talked about the romanticization of, of baseball kind of puts it in this category where, um, you know, we've all we see like the old clips, like even in the movie, which it does it really well. You know, it like it harkens back to the the 2000. What was it? 2001. Is it 2001? 2002. 2002. 2002. The, like old school, like, you know, film, which it's cool. Like we all like think back and like kind of it, it's got that nostalgia factor, but it doesn't actually baseball is not especially progressive in any sense. Like it's not good at seeing advantages and and taking advantage instead it takes it's taken decades over you know over its history to change in any sense and there's all this like yeah basically it's just it's the conventional wisdom that is it's it's baked into the very fiber of the game and it is it is like a nostalgia thing i think um, which is for, it's like represented as like you know the billy bean versus like the the renegade gm versus you know the con- the conventional wisdom scout like why they have like a spat in the hallway like there's there's a reason why that is illustrated specifically it's because it's like a t- particularly hard industry to change in any sense hmm. so like while the actual numbers aren't there's nothing revelatory about it like if you yeah you can bring in somebody that understands math because like i mentioned earlier it's a very measurable game it's easy to understand the metrics if you actually focus on that but it's more of just like a clash be- between personalities and culture than like actually how can we put the best team on the field? It's not really about that, which I think is like, I think baseball is unique in some ways in that respect. Like, I mean, let's, let's face it. We call it America's pastime. Like we all have this like romanticized conception of it and we all remember our childhoods and we have all these, um, you know, our grandpas talk about their, uh, how to play the game and that sort of thing. It doesn't really exist in other industries, which is why I think it makes it like an interesting topic, like to examine how people interact with each other, given, you know, differing motives. And you see that like, and that makes for very easy drama that I think uh, the screenwriters correctly picked as where they're going to 
hone in on where this change is at its most difficult. Cause yeah, like you said, like it, you know, and it should be pretty clear or there should really be no drama where it's like, Hey guys, we're here to win. Here's an easier way to win. Let's give it a shot. And everyone who's there who wants to win should be like, Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, fine. But we, as we all know, with any sort of paradigm shift or moving forward, just presenting facts isn't necessarily uh, what persuades an entire industry or culture to move in a different direction. You have to appeal to something else. It's it's a very interesting case study too with the 2002 athletics that they chose because in the ultimately they they failed. Uh, they didn't make it to the World Series. They didn't do what Billy B wanted to do. Um, now on, it's kind of funny by the standards of pure stats alone, what sabermetrics seek to do, he did succeed. He won more games on a cheaper budget. But in like the human reality and the culture of baseball, he's right. It's like we lost in the first round of the playoffs. No one gives a shit. So this is ultimately a failure until um, it really was the the Red Sox that uh, won a few years later that uh, kind of vindicated this method that we're still drawing on a lot today. Um, and it, it kind of when you're talking about like baseball as a culture being very slow to change, which I would agree among the major sports, I would say baseball is the most conservative culturally. And you see that right now in uh players like are becoming more flashy more showy more emotional and you're hearing every fucking 65 year old boomer like that's not how you respect the game these these damn kids in their showboating and uh surprise surprise usually the ones that get the most ire are not white american players uh so baseball also definitely has a problem with that as well um, you don't say. <laughs> yeah, uh, but Jared, yeah, I am curious about your perspective on it because, like, you're not—you didn't break your brain, brain with baseball culture for the last thirty some odd years. So, like, going into this, did you sense that uh, sort of internal tension? Did you sense like this, like the struggle between Billy Bean and like you know individuals as like a gr- microcosm for something greater? Oh yeah, absolutely. Prior to writing this book. Michael Lewis was most famous for writing a book called Liar's Poker, which is about his own experience trading on Wall Street. After he wrote this book, he wrote The Blind Side. But then after that, he wrote The Big Short. And I knew all of that going in. So like, I understood that there was probably going to be some more kind of macroeconomic underpinnings at play. And, you know, that that's obvious, you know, immediately from just knowing that money buys more money. So if you're the New York Yankees, you're going to just have this perfect flywheel of having superstar players attracting more money. And that feeds itself, that feeds itself, that feeds itself exactly in the same way that capitalism in general does. And yeah, so I, I think that I would assume that part of the reason why Moneyball captured the zeitgeist the way it did hmm. beyond just baseball is that people understand at least Americans and um, folks, you know, who are kind of under late stage capitalism do really understand that income inequality or that wage gap. And they can see themselves in the Oakland A's, which is, it's kind of funny when you're talking about $40 million versus $140 million. But even if you're just someone who's making minimum wage and you're seeing that the whole entire system is designed to not allow you to break out of it, then yeah, you're gonna have an emotional connection to Billy Mm. Bean's situation in 2002. That's obvious. 
Yeah, especially coming, this was made in 2011, right in the heels of the OA economic clash. So, yeah, I think about that as like a little zeitgeist capturing in that regard. And baseball is particularly among the major American sports. It is the most unequal when it comes to salaries that you can pay players. Like the other leagues have, I mean, there's ways to get around it as there is in any industry. There are salary caps and uh, that are pretty hard where baseball is a much softer one. So you can have something like the Oak and the Yankees having such a disparity where other sports it's it's still there but it's not nearly as intense which is funny because you know capitalism seems to say oh we love competition we want you know we want to encourage that but it's actually the sports that make a point to curb the biggest uh, beasts in the industry actually have better competition uh, but moving right along to, um, you know, this, we've, we've been talking baseball, sports talk. Uh, but let's uh, kind of hone in more on specifically like American sports movies in general, the good, the bad, the ugly. I actually, I flipped through earlier today, just like a general catalog of like major popular sports movies. And yeah, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I looked through them. They're mostly trash. Let's uh, let's just kind of hem and haw about uh the, the ones that work, the ones that don't, why they don't. Um, like the only other one I found that really stuck out to me that I that I just like genuinely like, regardless of its subject matter, and it's about sports, is like Raging Bull. Uh, but that's almost unfair to put on the list. Like whenever you see like top sports movies, that one's always on it. And I'm almost like, yeah, it's a sports movie, but like that's a Scorsese movie first and foremost. Well, and it's a movie about just an individual, yeah, right? Like so many when you think of sports for most people i would wager the first thing you're not thinking of is individual sports you're thinking of team sports and that just doesn't lend itself well to a compelling narrative the way something with a just a very central figure does Mm -hmm. i think that's again that's part of the reason why moneyball is an outlier is because it's does such a good job of really kind of lionizing Billy Bean in a way and like pumping him up as like a central figure like, like a good novel would do. I have to say though out of all of like the major sports, I do think that baseball has the best representation in cinema. Like the least amount like there's plenty of cringe, right? <laughs> but for every like Angels in the outfield, there's a Pride of the Yankees. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like for for every um, trouble with the curve, <laughs> like there's still like a league of their own or a mm-hmm. sandlot or, but I can't say the same thing about football. I can't say the same thing about basketball, like basketball movies, football movies, almost pure cringe. <laughs> uh, fun, fun little uh, cinematic fact. Uh, I have a giant scar on my left eye from taking a line drive to the face. And it was at the field where they filmed a league of their own. So uh, my blood is splattered across the same field that uh, those those ladies uh, played their hearts. Yeah, I out. still I still have some shrapnel from when they were shooting Airbud. <laughs> okay, Airbud is a legitimately incredible basketball film. So actually, I might uh, switch over to basketball as the best uh, sport for films. Here's here's my theory about sports movies. I think okay, so my theory is that they oftentimes overshoot the realism. And I think that that's probably true about, I'm no movie expert. You guys would know better than me. But as far as like, and and I'm coming from a biased opinion, but when I look, when I watch Moneyball, I look and I think about portrayal versus reality. And I get the dramatizing certain aspects. We're casting Brad Pitt as Billy Bean. 
he's got the dip in immediately. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's, uh, he's the go getter. He's going to be, he's going to go like, he's walking through the clubhouse, like dictating, like what pitch you should throw, whatever. I can just say from experience, even in the state of baseball now, which is very much more accepting of this reality, which is that if you're, uh, your metrics and the surrounding, like your peripherals about your performance, whether it's how you pitch and like the spin on your pitch or it's your on-base percentage or whatever it is, like the reality is that's not how it's translated. So I can understand like kind of like cutting to the chase and being like, okay, Billy Bean's the hero here. It makes for good drama. However, I think it's I think it's overselling its realism in some in some sense like think about okay so i was thinking about this earlier today think about like war movies mm-hmm. this is for the worse of course but like veterans that go see saving private ryan they're like having ptsd in the theaters right because like you know it's going for hyper realism and it succeeds in in every sense like it's actually like bringing them back sports movies in particular baseball where i haven't like the real experience it is doing the opposite of that I'm I'm like, this is actually kind of absurd. And it almost makes me, it makes me like kind of, and maybe I'm the heel here a little bit. I'm like, I don't want to dunk on it too much, but like sports movies in general, just kind of, it seems like they're kind of lazy with like how exactly they're trying to portray this. You know, certain movies, like, of course, like you, you talk about the period pieces, like you're talking about going into like specific historical reality we're talking about going in doing all this research like casting people for very very hyper specific you know reasons and i just don't see that necessarily in sports movies i like comedy in sports movies i think like major league is a great example Mm -hmm. of like a like a total win like the sandlot you know you got the you got the nostalgia comedy factor like that's a good one as well like you have you have some I, I like the levity with sports because I think in general, I think it's hard to land the plane mm. and, and it might be on like the technical side of like, it's hard to, you know, cast people that, you know, really deliver or whatever. But at like, it's almost like a meme on the internet these days. Is it not like, I, I don't know if you guys saw this. There was like a, whatever, like teen movies, you like have the guy that's like throwing the football and he looks like he's never thrown a football. I feel like that's the case for like baseball movies in general. It's like, can we get somebody that looks like they've played at all to like cast as like the first round draft pick? And I get that that might be a nitpick because like 99% of people don't care, but I don't know. I just, I just don't like the portrayal of hyper realism. Mm. And I think the, uh, the film actually does a good job of handling that particular aspect. Cause like, I always look for that, especially in pitchers. Cause I know what it looks like when you know how to throw and it wisely, especially with the submarine pitcher, which is a particularly funky way to throw and to get an actor to like, oh, not only do you have to know how to throw, but you have to know how to throw your where your knuckles almost drag on the ground and throw it accurately. Like, that's a lot to ask of someone. That's a lot to ask of a professional pitcher. So they're they're constantly and I was looking for it. They're constantly cutting like right on time and using live footage to fill in the game footage over and over. And I thought that was a pretty uh tasteful approach to getting that done where my favorite like silly baseball moment in films i ever saw did you guys ever see uh the rookie not rookie of the year but the rookie it's the one with dennis quaid where he's like uh he's like a 42 year old high school teacher or something like that he's out of the game and he's never gonna play again um and he gets an opportunity or there's like a tryout for him to go play as a pitcher again he he wants to see if he still has it you know 
and he's in small town Texas, and he goes in front of a uh, a speed trap at, on a highway, and he just grabs a baseball cold. You know, hasn't warmed up, hasn't thrown, arms not in shape. Just just grabs that baseball and just lets her rip. And he looks over at it, and it says 75, which first off, if you can grab a ball cold and throw 75, you're probably a big leaguer. Like, that's incredible. So he looks as like, oh, man, I don't have it anymore. Oh, shucks. Uh, and then as he walks away, like, the you know, it's like the screen was glitching. It actually shows 95, and I'm like, get the fuck out of here. If you can throw 95 cold, you can probably throw 110 or 115 if your arm's in shape and you're hot. Like, get fuck off. Uh, that one, that one, I remember, like bothered me enough. Where it's like, whatever happens after this movie, I don't care. That that particular iteration of sports movies is is especially frustrating. I don't know. I, we're, we'll probably get into the like the the tropiness in a minute. But can I rant about Trouble with the Curve for a second? <laughs> oh, do we want to have we, our Trouble in the Curve corner? We have time for whatever we want. And if anything needs to be cut for time, I will. <laughs> yeah, this is our podcast. The listeners are subjected to what we want. Okay, so this is just my, I'll give a <laughs> one minute rant on why Trouble with the Curve, like it is a little bit at the anti-Moneyball in, in certain respects because. Give mine, it know, did come out a year after Moneyball. It's basically like, it's basically like hearkening to like the scouts wisdom and so on. And, and also like, I will say there is something to be said there, like about the eyes on the experience you know that's a real thing here's the reality there we we just get we get way too far into the specific weeds about why do sports movies have this fixation on they're like trying to capture historical events that are better they're, they're like routinely better in in like the old footage like they're, they're trying to like recreate them and dramatize them. There's no need to. I don't think I don't see like it's already a dramatic moment. Like, I don't know. You guys probably have thoughts about this. But anyway, here's here's the trouble with the curve rant. Clint Eastwood, a aging scout. He is using his daughter, Amy Adams, to basically supplement his failing eyesight. His contribution to the scouting department is he can hear problems on the field so here's the thing i don't know i don't need i don't think i need to explain to anybody why that's ridiculous that's just not a thing i don't know how that got greenlit for <laughs> it is absurd they're like com they're like comboing his daughter's like eyesight and his his hearing to like pick players but he his is somehow invaluable i don't know i, I feel like sports movies have a tendency to oversell like some of the admittedly dramatic elements of like how the industry works. And they're just, they're just really trying to like, cause people it's already dramatic. I feel like they're trying to like hyper dramatize so, it. Yeah. Like you're saying, like it's, it's a kind of a cliche joke where, you know, the bottom of the ninth bases loaded two outs down by three, you know, uh, Billy Johnson, the kid with the broken ankle hits a grand slam and the team wins the high school state championship. He like, crawls around the bases. Like in real life, that's incredible. That's the coolest shit on the planet. In a movie, it's cliche. Uh, so well, I, yeah, if you can script it, then <laughs> obviously it's not going to be nearly as compelling as if folks competing with each other get to that 
point organically and just like trying to manufacture that in a way is always going to seem bogus even to a layman like i i i know you guys you know can go off the deep end on this stuff talking about how much artifice is in sports movies but i can also tell you as a layman i would say most people could feel it even if they're not consciously thinking about exactly why they could still feel that artifice and I think this is a good segue to start talking about what we like about Moneyball for at least a little bit, because I think it was really smart to have Bennett Miller in the director's chair for this, because even though he's only made of he had only made one feature, Capote, before Moneyball, he had cut his teeth a lot as a documentarian, and the way that he does use the actual footage to not even just supplement like it's almost like he's using the narrative production footage to supplement the real footage rather than the other way around i think does do a lot to at least in like my layman's eyes to buy me into the reality of at least this situation and also for you know everything that they do to sort of dramatize billy bean as this trailblazer when in real life he wasn't nearly as much of one the, the facts are are all there, right? I mean, they won 20 games in a row. They shit the bed in the playoffs. Like, none of that is dramatized. That's just how it happened. And that is, you know, extraordinary all on its own. So I do think that Moneyball is like a rare exception where what, what you're describing, Drew, does, doesn't doesn't hit as hard for me compared to mm-hmm. some of the other movies that we've, we've mentioned. I, as a layman, it does seem more authentic. I think it was wise to do the 2002 2002- Oakland Athletics to make a, kind of almost like you said almost a documentary style nonfiction narrative uh, because like who in 2011 was like oh yeah the 2002 Oakland Athletics I know exactly how that season went going into this movie like even I didn't know so when they w- did like the streak it's like I didn't know what the streak was or how long it went or when like what they were going to stop at so every new win like during that little montage bit which I think is one of like the strongest moments of the film uh, especially that final game, I was like, kind of like, oh, oh shit, are they going to pull it off? Because I actually don't know. I didn't follow the uh, the athletics in two thousand two. I'll give a I'll give a take about what I think Moneyball like captures decently, and this is kind of in like flying in the face a little bit of what I said earlier about like the measurable nature of baseball. So here's the reality: baseball. Why is the why is the season one hundred and sixty two games? The reason is it's not, I mean, it is to sell tickets and, you know, make as much money as possible and it's possible to do that, whatever. But the reality is it takes a long time for the competition to separate itself because there is a lot of luck involved in baseball. And this is something that is like commonly misunderstood. Basically, baseball is the kind of the epitome of confirmation bias extrapolated to like the utmost. Hmm. It's like, we made this move and then it worked out. So it was the right move. I made this and it, and like managers and, you know, GMs, they face this stuff all the time. Like they're constantly battling with like the press basically. And like the average fan, which to be fair, like, I don't think it's like within, you know, I don't, I think it's totally reasonable for, to be criticized. You made these moves. It didn't work out, whatever. But the reality is the average fan doesn't understand that so much about baseball is literally just, happenstance Mm -hmm. in some cases it's literally just the physics of it like you're hitting a ball randomly it's very hard to even make contact with it it goes like sporadically across the field we have all this positioning but like moneyball is based off of the 
aggregate. It's based off of long-term decision-making to like, how can we come out ahead in the long-term? And yeah, I don't know. I think it's like important to keep in mind that the, the general depiction of baseball, especially even on like sports center and so on, they, they want to like snippet certain, you know, talking points or stories or whatever, but it doesn't actually capture the reality of how the business works. And I can get into that in a little bit. I'm sure we'll get into, you know, some more of the business side, but. And you, you see that in the film too, where it's like kind of one of the antagonists of the film is just the Oakland athletics fans. Like you're constantly seeing like sports talk radio or like public commentary about Billy Bean and the team and like that. And they show that at the beginning of like in the middle of the movie when the season starts and they're, you know, they're like 15, 20 games in and they are having a cold start, not very well. And just from that sample size, like everyone's like, this guy's an idiot, get fire him like this, like this shit failed experiment where like what you're saying, part of the reason why it takes that many games to determine who's the best team in Major League Baseball is that there's so much fucking dumb luck to this all that you're uh, you got to play this these probabilities out over a very a massive sample size which is also why a lot of like dorky stat people go towards baseball because they just have the longest season they just have the biggest pool of stats that you can look at and play with where like uh what football is like 18 games i mean baseball plays more games than that in about 3 weeks there's literally like this season there's a great example of this like luis araiz for the marlins this year he was on espn and so on for chasing ted williams he's like he was hitting 400 in june or something like that Uh, for those at home what does hitting 400 mean getting a hit four out of ten times so 40 percent of the time you get a hit that's exceedingly rare hard to do almost impossible and he was basically he was doing this in repeating a lot of great performances. But the reality is one of the easiest ways to predict baseball is regression. It's like you've outperformed, especially now where we have even more advanced statistics about how you hit it and how often you hit it and so on. And basically you can predict at today, in today's game, you, you'll, bet you'll regress to the mean. So he's now hitting like 375. So 37.5% of the time he gets a hit. Point being, it's a very difficult game. The luck does even out over time. That's mm. again, that's that's like hearkening back to why the season is so long. It's important to remember that contracts in these seasons are long for specific reasons. They make teams are made over a long period of time. And I guess that's Moneyball does get at that. They're trying to, I think there's actually even a specific point, you know, prior to the climax, Jonah Hill's, you know, making a point to, to Brad Pitt about, you know, sticking to your guns. Basically he's, you know, he's telling off the scouts We're we're doubling down. And I will say that does take some courage, like in that industry to actually follow through with the decisions, especially considering the blowback, the media blowback, fans generally don't understand it. It is like relatively mathematically simple. It's not reflected in how people view the sport generally. It's kind of people still want to harken back to their experience 
when I played, when, you know, my experience there, the nostalgia, America's pastime and so on. And I think that is like an interesting dichotomy. Like, and it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's entertainment. Like no one wants to whip out the fucking abacus to sit here and follow a baseball season. They just want to watch, you know, athletic people do interesting things on screen and compete. Uh, so why should they care about all that? And it's not like uh, we expect Billy Bean to before the season to give uh, a Harvard level lecture on statistics and analysis on why he's developing the team that he developed. Like baseball and all sports fall within the realm of entertainment as an industry. So that's what they got to do first. And the best way to entertain people is to be winning. So, you know, he's correct in that assumption where it's like, that's how we win the most. But uh, it might not always look pretty. And, you know, people are watching it because they want to watch a fun team win a lot in an interesting way. Uh, and Moneyball was sort of flying in the face of that. Well, it's not even that they want to watch the team win a lot, because if that was the case, then the Oakland A's were, you know, they won the t- 2002 season. It's they want to watch them win in the playoffs. They want to watch them win the World Series. And yeah, if you're talking about 162 games, yeah, you can use stats to to make sure you win a lot of games. But when you're talking about five games, now luck is just exponentially more important. And that's when the luck runs out, oh. right? But but the, the average person, you know, they're not watching 162 baseball games. Even like, even there's a lot of folks that might just watch like, Maybe they don't even watch until the postseason begins. Maybe they'd only watch the World Series. And I think that's like one of the reasons Moneyball is cool because it's one of the only sports movies I can think of that does not concern the postseason. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or like, you know, the big game or the big moment. Yeah. Um, and yeah, actually, that's a, that's a good way to segue into this point where it's more on th- or theme that... Uh, on you know I've seen this movie a, a handful of times and this time I, this just I don't know for some reason it poked out to me the most where the two real big pieces or the two forces that were uh, uh, competing with one another where Drew's kind of been po- alluding to it with stats it's like quote unquote intangibles versus the hard data in sports or in like in any uh, measurable. Uh, sort of endeavor where you got to choose like who who do we want on our side who do we reject and not put into our team to our company to our organization to our movement yada 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 and i think the uh the movie does a good job of at least pointing the flaws of going fully on the intangibles although and as uh in group chats that we've had earlier we were talking about this like it might overcorrect a little too much into pure uh technocratic understanding um but just to kind of kick things off and you guys can fill in where you want where i think it does do a great job where as we said is uh baseball is very traditional sport where you have that very funny scene at the beginning with all the scouts right there's not a person there born after world war ii probably born after world war one in the room they're like he's got a great jawline he really carries himself oh he's even the idea of the five tool player is something that still is even said today which like is kind of a, a mushy term when you really tried to analyze it um uh, and they keep saying that to billy bean uh you know younger billy bean he's like a failed example of the quote-unquote five tool player so what do we think about like you know, the hard data of what eventually became Sabermetrics and, and Moneyball versus the very real still 
factor that needs to be considered, which is the intangibles of like, how does this guy act under pressure? What is he like in the clubhouse? What Does what is, he have an ugly girlfriend? Does he, yeah, does he have an ugly girlfriend? Which first off, all of those things said in that room, I have heard from like scouts or people ta- evaluating players. Like th- that was pulled from reality and Drew can probably attest to that. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with you there. As far as intangibles versus hard data, I do have anecdotally, here's what I can say. The the reality is you have you have the front office, the business side of the house, you have their, you know, orchestrating, putting together a team, the Billy Beans of the world and all of their counterparts. And then you have the player side. And it's easy like this movie dichotomizes those two things. Like we literally have like the spat between the old scout, you know, we are talking about specifically you know upending previous norms the reality like throwing these things away is not i don't think is like a good way of understanding how the the progression of the sport has worked and i don't think it's like a good understanding of like how change would work in any healthy functioning organization the reality is that it should be a blend of course i don't think it i don't think uh, i'm not sure that moneyball actually contends with the fact that old scouts do actually have some good insight from time to time and i'll i'll like invoke from a personal experience standpoint like i will i'll say that i've you know had conversations with manager like managers meaning head coaches of baseball teams that will talk about being dictated certain initiatives or or like how we how we're going to run this team and like you have to do like which we literally saw that between philip seymour and and brad pitt in in the film they were combative about the lineup the reality is any successful organization if they're actually trying to maximize their outcomes is probably going to do some sort of blend of the two Mm -hmm. conversations that i've had basically revolve around um the fact that yes the aggregate statistical reality is true like you can show me like who i should play more on average how we get to where we need to be on average over time but the front office who's not in the clubhouse generally uh they don't know who's hungover you know who's <laughs> going through a bad situation you know whatever the whatever the case may be there is absolutely a human element that needs to be taken into consideration and i don't know it's it's a little bit like i feel like sports movies do fall into this trap a little bit that they want to you know pick a side it's either it's either the nostalgic sort of conventional wisdom side or the changing the game sort of thing but the reality is like these two things are always married well are you about to speak in dialectics over here that it's actually the synthesis of the two and that this is a a false dichotomy of sorts and we need to move forward by the blending of the two in order to create a new synthesis (laughs) well okay so the thing that bugs the (laughs) shit out of me about this movie is because what drew is saying is the the data probably shows that that's the best best way to actually look at it is oh. that blend of the two right <laughs> but the like the book as well as the movie they 
conveniently omit the fact that also on the 2002 A's roster were the MVP that year, Miguel Tejada, who was MVP largely because of his batting average, not his on-base percentage, not his slugging. Uh, And then also Barry Zito won the Cy Young Award that year, both of whom like were very well paid, were recruited by the traditional methods and uh, it's so, it's such bullshit that this entire yarn is spun conveniently omitting that fact. I think, yeah, and there's there's one bit I'll I'll slightly defend them on where, you know, the focus was on offense. Um, and it is, it gets trickier to measure in this way when it comes to evaluating pitchers, or at least it gets less interesting and less cool. Like, who wants to, no one goes to a game to watch the pitchers. They're there to watch the hitters do cool stuff. Uh, so I understand why they probably want to focus more on the hitters. And then on the other side, like, like what you're saying is like the the most interesting way to have like really dug into this theme of traditionalism, traditionalism versus progressivism is like the new is birthed out of the old. It's not that the old is completely rejected and then we just go in another direction. It's that we take what was already there. I mean, you see that in like historical revolutions, like the American Revolution, for example. Like it's not like they just said everything that the Brits did brits did is dumb and bad and we hate it it was born out of something that already existed which is exactly what the athletics did with the examples of like tejada and uh barry zito there but yeah omitting both of that especially keeping zito out of the story altogether was a strange omission although it would have yeah would have flied in the face of the dichotomy that he wanted to set up which ultimately as we're talking about is like not real it's a bit of a false dichotomy i understand that there were pressures for him to push against but like where the chips fell in the end is that like you kind of got to marry both yeah well and i i think uh this is another thing that that drew noted here is that uh even even like the next step is like if a lot of these players that they bought for cheap developed and then sold at a at a big margin that kind of prevented them from like reaping the benefits of the intangibles as these guys got more confident, they got more star power. They like started to actually develop those intangibles. They were, they would just get sold off because Oakland was just like pinching pennies at every corner, uh, probably shot themselves in their, in the foot that way. Like, I don't know like nearly enough about how they've done as a team in the last 20 years to back that up, but I assume not well. Uh, no, there, I mean that year, not a fluke, but you know, it's, Baseball is traditionally the the big dogs will consistently be the ones in the playoffs. And there are examples of uh, teams that make much less money uh, breaking through. Like I think the Royals, who uh, they're out of Kansas City and they're traditionally almost, I would say, poorer than even the athletics. <laughs> they won the World Series like four or five years ago. Um, so it, it can happen. Uh, but yeah, the athletics have not quite repeated the glory of 2002 although that is an interesting thing um, a bit you know a time of recording uh while we while i was watching moneyball it was a little sad to watch moneyball and like watch that you know this this lovable band of broken toys really be, like get together and and you know fly in the face of established baseball wisdom because just this year oakland has been setting record low attendance and has agreed to leave oakland and they're now going to las vegas so the oakland athletics oh, yeah do not exist anymore. So I was watching with my girlfriend at the time. She brought that up. I'm like, Oh, that is kind of sad. Like this is like kind of a swan song of maybe cause you know, there'll be no more movies made about future Oakland athletics teams cause they won't exist anymore. So this probably will be like 
the Oakland Athletics movie to ever exist. Uh, right. Yeah, it kind of feels like a, a bit of a sad swan song. Um, yeah, well, and I've heard it, it's more than just that kind of failing to attract the crowds. I've heard that they've they've like pinched pennies so hard over the last two decades that the the ballpark is literally falling apart and is like infested with rodents and you know ba- like you know b- a bad sewage system and it's just like in utter disarray. By by all accounts, the Coliseum is the worst place to play in the Leafs. <laughs> I can attest to that, not from firsthand experience, but from from secondhand. People that I know, Oakland is the worst place to play. They're literally, they're, so to speak, going to market with their, you know, accommodations that they have as they exist is is kind of like an embarrassment in certain mm-hmm. respects. And, you know, they are, they are kind of just like angling to move the team. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's what we were just talking about. I, I'm curious, what what do we think Billy Bean's perspective is on moving the team? I mean, oh. <laughs> you know, the, end, the ending of the movie, do we want to get there yet or do we want to hold off? No, that's fine. Yeah. yeah oh, spoil, uh, spoil away. Yeah, we put in the intro that will we spoil everything. So yeah. it's a given. So like the heroic ending, you know, is that Billy Bean, you know, he refused the Red Sox money and he like remained in Oakland. I'm curious, like the the relationship between him turning down that offer, like what kind of what kind of pull does he have in Oakland today? Because by all account, like as far as I understand, Oakland is one of the worst places to play. And I don't mean that I'm not trying to, you know, put anybody on blast or anything, but it is kind of like there are spectrums of accommodations that are expected for employees of you know, a huge business, an $11 billion business, which we could get into kind of like why, you know, some of this gets overlooked and like what exactly the attitude is of the public versus, you know, the player side there. I don't know. There's, there's an interesting interplay between the front office, the, the team itself, the players, and then the public's perception of it. I don't know if we want to, dive into that but baseball is a very very weird industry in that respect like as far as like the disconnect between all parties and you see that in the film too where you look at like they they call it out where they're like we don't even we can't even get free soda here what's going on we're like yeah that's where jonah hill says someone's like oh yeah it's hard to see that dollar that you save but it's out there on the field and you know david justice (laughs) who's kind of serving as like the wise leader character he's like yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty fucking hard to see that on the field. Also, I did notice is uh, I'd have to double check that. I think this is a PG thirteen movie, and they do do the rule where they say fuck once, and they where usually, is it? Uh, it's in the it's in the like uh, when they're all talking about like oh we need to buy wins or like what's the problem? What's the problem? What's the issue? And then like you know they're not getting it. They're not answering the question. So Brad Pitt's like, so what the fuck are we talking about? And I'm like, oh, he used the word. Very funny. I love when the uh, when PG thirteen movies use their one uh, fuck very very well. But yeah, uh, yeah, ba- baseball. It is very funny to see where money gets spent, and especially in light of actually, we can we can get into this subject generally. Like we're in the middle of 
an actor strike, a, an industry that kind of has a similar structure. Well, it's in the entertainment industry. This is you know much more right down the heart of entertainment, where sports is a little adjacent to it. It's entertainment, but it's in a different way. And uh, a lot of the demands, the complaints from SAG-AFTRA, it, it echoes things that I remember from baseball, where it's players, there's a few people at the top, and players or actors, we'll use you know them interchangeably, that are making a ton, that are doing great. Your Shohei Otanis and your Brad Pitts are doing great. They're making a lot of money. And yet you have a lot of baseball strikes, where through the lockout for baseball was two years ago? Was that it? I forget how long ago the, the baseball lockout was uh i don't know time is an illusion it was it was basically born out of 2020 yeah so like, yeah going into 2021 i believe so very recently and it was the complaints were similar and you were seeing similar uh, uh like of the dumbest things you ever heard it's like oh the millionaires want even more money now where it's not about the shohei otanis or brad pitt's it's about the 100 to 200 other people in that same industry that will never that barely make above the poverty level that have to also exist for people to make that much money or, or for those like very, very few people to be on top. But then even more importantly, then you have the equivalent of like the studio executives who are the owners of the team who keep giving themselves bigger and bigger bonuses while the lives of most of the people employed under them who are the literal products are essentially living under the poverty line. So, and a bit of that is kind of exemplified in Moneyball. Like, of course, they're not, they don't wisely, they don't get into the weeds of like farm systems and minor leagues and how those guys are paid or something. It was kind of funny to see. I forget, uh, I think it was not Scott Hatterberg. It was one of the players got sent down to AAA, which, like, the way that conversation went, it sounds like you're going to the dungeon the land of lost toys where you will never be found again. Where in reality, AAA is a pretty solid gig. Um, but it, it was fun, uh, like... <laughs> the Oakland's AAA team is outselling the Oakland Athletics this year. No, that's so funny. Yeah, I just <laughs> I read... I, is it Vegas? I, I, I don't know. I, I just read that like the, the, the top of the heap minor league you know, Oakland A's affiliate is actually outselling the Oakland A's right now. I feel like recently it has... I last played in the Pacific Coast League where the A's are in in 2019. And I'm pretty sure that the Las Vegas Knights were the A's affiliate in that they they probably they probably moved on. They probably they probably got cheap and <laughs> didn't retain the contract. No, it's uh it's currently Vegas, uh which maybe that you know makes the movie even easier. But so uh, yeah. Getting back into yeah the movie itself, um, watching this during the SAG after strike just got me thinking about the valuation of players slash actors and how you can, for players at least, you can use some tangibles to then relate to dollar signs. Like right now, the big question is this like once in a generation talent, Shohei Otani, for those who I keep using the name for those who don't know, he's pretty much like no one's ever seen a talent to this level in maybe a hundred years genuinely and he's about to he's about to go essentially shopping around for a new team and get signed so everyone's talking about how much he's going to get paid and the way everyone justifies his pay is with like hard data with numbers um very similar to like i don't know how you would judge like a salesman or uh yeah. a, a former ceo or something like that you look at their bottom lines you look at the revenue that they brought in where for an athlete to be like wins they brought in or runs that they hit in or strikeouts that they got 
and like in this day and age where we have so many we're so interested in quantifying everything in order to turn it into dollar signs which you're seeing that attitude kind of the birth of it or the popularization of it in moneyball uh you see it used in kind of more perverse ends or exploit you're shockingly you're seeing this new idea being used for exploitative ends and jared I, as someone who works more or has spent more time in the arts uh, i would like to hear your thoughts on like how do you value an actor? Like, how do you look at a guy (laughs) and be like, oh yeah, he deserves this much money because he can, he's a, he's a 92 out of a hundred actor. Like, how does that even work? Well, it's certainly closer to the way that the old scouts are making these decisions compared to the the way that, you know, a sabermetrics person would. Uh, It's like any other industry. Like uh, even after you remove the nepotism, it really is more about networking and being lucky with the people that you know. Here's the thing, like what you said, like you can't really quantify how good of an actor someone is because really great acting is subjective, but what isn't as subjective is really bad acting. <laughs> like, like pretty much everyone agrees on what bad acting looks like and no one agrees on what the best acting looks like. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely just those folks that just do not have it that have no chance of progressing, even if they are really pretty and well-connected because they just can't do it. But among those people that can, and those people that are very good at it, who are either very attractive or at least very interesting looking, and who you know, are, you know, can, can actually put in the grind and, and can actually afford to not get paid for a long period of time, it really just boils down to networking and to luck and the, you know, uh, the more, the better networking you do, the higher your odds of being lucky are. And then from there, it's just like any other career, it's building a resume. Like I would say one of the only quantifiable things that comes out a lot is in the resume, like how much are you working? Because if you're working a lot, it means you're doing something right. You're not pissing people off. You're not, you're not screwing around. And then on top of that, if the same people cast you multiple times, Mm. that's probably the biggest that's like the the best comparison to you know batting average or a low ERA or well, you know, good on base percentages. Uh, just how often how often does Tim Burton cast you over and over again? That that's interesting because there is a similar aspect in baseball. It's like if if you get cut by a team and you're not playing for even a few weeks, you're done. It's over. Don't even work. Like don't worry about coming back. Um, you have to keep playing. And uh, they even bring that up. What it was like, David Justice or one of the players were like five other teams passed on him or no one wants to pick him up and you want to pick him up. Um, So this like constantly be working, constantly being employed ideas there too. And like what you're saying is like, it's very easy to see when someone's terrible at the sport, but then like the hair's breadth different between good and great is so imperceptible and it's so hard to measure. And like, we're getting better at measuring it. But like the difference between, I mean, me and Drew played in uh, levels that it, on paper are like vastly different, like the the heights of talent or even just AAA to the big leagues is perceived as this like massive jump. Where in reality, the skill level is like almost imperceptible, but that imperceptibility over 170, 180 games starts to add up in a hurry. Um, but then moving on to... Uh, just generally, uh, I, I like, I think I mentioned it earlier uh, about baseball and like these these conflicting ideas, these more technocratic ideas versus these more 
I don't want to be as generous to the scouts and call them humanistic ideas, but they tend to lean more on that side. I guess I'll give, I'll cut them some slack because the movie just did a lot of dunking on scouts. Um, but this like technocratic idea versus this more humanistic idea of how we measure value, how we choose what's important versus what we need to throw aside and how that like baseball in general is a good industry as a microcosm of the general economy at large. And Jared, I think you're mentioning that too. It's like, it, it is tied to like, you know, baseball exists. It was developed and exists today within capitalism. And so it's got like all of the stains, good, bad, or ugly all over it on it. Um, and I just wanted to get a, a bit of your guys thoughts of like, how does this movie work? Like not talking baseball, not talking about the sport itself, but how does it work just like as a discussion I think Jared hit the nail on the head a little bit with like capturing the zeitgeist in 2011 of this, just like this feeling that you're getting screwed. If I'm understanding your question correctly, you're, you're asking basically how does this movie sort of exemplify more of like the, the broader ideas of like kind of the, the technocratic understanding of value versus um, more of just like the, the pure humanistic side. And I think it's, I think that, the, well, like, first of all, the movie and the book take a very specific route in only pointing out the technocratic side and eliminating the parts that, that, you know, would dare challenge that point of view. But I can definitely tell you, like, even stick, sticking with baseball, it's like, I work in big, like big, big, big tech. I have at least one major league baseball team that is a customer of mine, and they are certainly investing heavily in generative ai ah. and building out their data set and they're found like you know stacking on top of a foundational model to do this to an even greater extent mm -hmm. and that is not just baseball that is everyone yeah 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 because i'm thinking more like broadly uh in previous industries i've been where um i won't get into specifics because i just don't feel like getting in hot water with previous companies i worked for where they wanted to find these metrics that proved success, that could prove revenue, that could be repeatable, that could be predictable. And every single time they pointed at one and like, the, the, it's almost like now it's like the old wisdom is technocratic looking. It's like, if you do these activities at these levels to this consistently, it will turn into this amount of revenue. And it just like consistently turned out to be false because it doesn't bring in the intangibles of like, well, how do you interact with people when you're doing these things over and over? And and how, you know, what's what's your attitude? What's your approach? Like what um, you can know all the right things to say in a particular case, but like why you're doing it and the genuine connection behind it. Um, so, you know, intangibles uh, that well, can't be measured. Well, th well, that's that's true. Like I won't go into the specific baseball dichotomy but that's like that's true in in like in every sense there is i feel like there's always a tension between people that work with you and understand what you're doing they understand you on a personal level mm. versus like the broader like the big picture sort of like plan from you know from a top down perspective you have the understanding that we're we're moving in this direction we have to do this xyz and then you have like the fight i guess i would say from the grassroots level of like your co-workers your you know people that understand you on a personal level that will like fight for you and so on and i think that is true in every at you know in every industry not just not just baseball of course i think it is an interesting 
way to look at employment and something that we often overlook is just yeah how do we how do we discern exactly what this individual is contributing to this organization like how how can we say what is the to that point what saber metrics moneyball what baseball has tried to do is condense things to a digestible one number sort of metric whatever you know whatever the case is something that can be replaced traded part of the industry at least in baseball move it around interchange the parts how do we get to where we need to be but there's something missing i think but i don't i'm not i don't have an answer for how exactly like what any sort of replacement would need to look like mm. i think it's like a little bit callous in a lot of ways like you you get like and some of my criticism for moneyball would come to that sense like okay we like we have brad pitt like running through the clubhouse you know telling telling pitchers how often they, they need to throw their slider or whatever it doesn't really happen like that but i can understand like the top-down sort of like impetus to to like focus on something that is like measurably important and then also the human element being like well come on like this guy gets it he can yeah. you know you don't need to fucking cut him you can just we can work we can work together but i don't know there it's like that communication in a lot of in a lot of sense or in a lot of cases is just really really difficult to that that bridge is hard to build i think well i think what is getting at totally different worlds mm, yeah because i think what you're getting at is like it, it was a quick line that i think really exemplified one of the major ethos of the film where uh you know brad pitt's asked he sees jonah hill a uh, little desk nerd over uh at the cleveland now guardians uh but at the time the cleveland indians uh, saying, uh, where are you from? Who are you? Like, whose cousin are you? What's going on? And then he asks his background. He's like, I have a degree from economics from Yale. And then Brad Pitt just kind of goes, Yale, economics, baseball. It's like, yeah, th this is this is a new thing. We're bringing economic thinking into a sport like baseball. And, you know, you're only seeing the proliferation of this consuming more and more parts of human life, which is economic thinking, where if like, if I can't quantify it and I can't measure it and I can't look at it over time, then it doesn't exist and I can ignore it. And I think like Moneyball could kind of lean into that where like, like what you're saying, it's like these intangibles where it's like the people that work with you every day have this like intuitive understanding of the value that you're bringing. And they might not be able to point to a chart and say like, Drew is this cool of a guy and we want him around because he does X, Y, Z. Uh, but what you can point to a chart is like Drew makes this much money for the company. Um, but even that it's like, well, did he make all that? Like how else are other ways that he's making it that we're not measuring? Um, so I think Moneyball is like an interesting, I guess maybe, you know, now it's 12 years out uh, from the film making of the film. Like I get a little eye rolly of this, like, almost masturbatory celebrate celebration of like yay economic thinking in another thing that didn't have it before we need it to be in everything now where you know now in 2023 we have economic analysis all the way down to how much fucking attention we spend looking at a single tweet or something like that and it's getting uh it's getting gross guys even i mean even in that sense 
like baseball is this it is an outlier in the sense that it is a it's an outlier in a lot of its like functioning but yes there's there's just not a, a great through line for how exactly the industry works but also first and foremost this is like you know it's a character study on billy bean like i don't they they need to bring in the industry as an antagonist but i don't think this was intended to like sit here and pick apart the entire sports industry and the state of it in 2002 it was more just like how it's relevant to what billy bean was doing and and one of the things like in the character like focusing on the character study of billy bean i think uh a bit that i found the film was sort of showing in a positive light that i don't know i guess watching it now again i was like that is kind of interesting he's kind of they're painting something that could be kind of dickish in a positive light where it's like in order and you you see cases of this in every field whether it's business or sports or politics or what have you like in order to be like a quote unquote revolutionary and push a new idea uh, and push back against the established thought, like there is a level of you that you got to be sort of a tyrant. You kind of have to be uh, not authoritarian in nature, but you kind of have to stop listening to the people around you uh, or at least some of the voices so that you can almost force through this new idea. I mean, he it's basically what he did. He uh, There was a scene where he was trading all these players uh, without any consultation with anyone, without any uh, input. In fact, he didn't get input because he knew that uh, there would be huge pushback from everyone. And so he just did it anyway uh, in order to get his way. And, you know, it turned out that he was right. They had the great streak. Everything went well, yada, 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 high five. Uh, but I just, uh, I'm curious about your guys' thoughts on the way he was portrayed in, uh, yeah, essentially acting like the dictator of the Oakland Athletics for <laughs> during the summer of 2002. Well, I think the the owner of the Red Sox at the end of the movie puts it really succinctly and really, really well as the first guy gets bloody. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to say that just having this like authoritarian mindset and not paying attention to like what other like other people's feedback or like uh, particularly like from other experts around you like like I would never say that it's a good thing to ignore that but I do think I agree with the assertion that for someone to to actually invent something new to like simplify something that's been complicated for a long time or the other way around uh yeah like they have to be sort of bullish like they do have to ignore the the peanut gallery that only knows how to do this one thing, this one way, and especially something that's been set in stone for as long as, you know, that the scouting practices, like that's, that's obvious to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, I think about it in a broader context or even just like new social ideas or new attitudes that we want to kind of popularize or make more uh, normal or common where it's like, no, you know, just the general like idea of like, well, we've always done it this way. Well, we've always thought this way. Well, this is just like human nature and this is how we are. And, you know, voices are pushing back. It's like, no, like that's not the case. And there is a level uh, that you kind of have to push back really hard against people or, you know, a fun historical, a cute little historical example I like is like the institution of slavery. You know how we got rid of slavery? We didn't win hearts and minds of plantation owners. We didn't just like knock on their doors and say like, hey guys, like here's all the good, interesting facts about why slavery is wrong. Like, oh, good point. Thanks. I didn't think about that. I'm going to free all the slaves. Like uh, we kind of had to, uh, we had to, we had to kill a lot of them. Now, Billy Bean didn't have to kill anyone. Uh, so that's good. 
but like generally Wait, like, i thought also brad pitt did that <laughs> oh brad pitt does do that too man brad pitt revolutionary on uh out there on the screen <laughs> um wait i wanted i wanted to bring up the on this topic specifically we've all seen the way that this movie is portrayed basically the the billy bean hero arc you know the sort of especially important sensibility the reality is we've seen this we've all seen this if you're older than 25 you've probably seen this in a, in a working environment fail in some respect which is somebody that comes in that wants to i now have the answers i'm going to you know revolutionize the group or whatever i'm going to be like taking like the tyrant route so to speak and it just being a total flop and i'm just curious like what are you, what are y'all's thoughts on on exactly like how do we how do we draw the line exactly between some sensible leadership and push towards something that we you know that is a good direction versus like dude you're being incoherent and weird <laughs> and you know just not exactly addressing any of the actual functional ground level like problems of the organization which you know the 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 general worker would understand um and i'll just i'll just caveat that slightly with not caveat but like augment that slightly with if billy bean ever ever listens to this you know sorry but it (laughs) it's by all accounts from what i understand billy bean is a weird guy like he's not (laughs) my understanding of billy bean is not brad pitt you know, throwing a dip aside and, and like in, and like telling the group exactly how to like play the game or whatever. It's more of a very like awkward interaction, which is fine, but it's, it's, it's hard to like exactly draw the distinction in the traumatic representation versus like how, how that works exactly. And should we care? Well, first Uh, off, if you're going to get a biopic made about you, I mean, you want Brad Pitt, don't you? Like, I, I really hope that I have a biopic made about me. And it's, uh, you know, by the time it's made, I hope maybe not Brad Pitt. He's kind of aged out of being the hottest man alive. But whoever that guy is at the point, I want a super charismatic, charming person with a bunch of screen presence. So uh, hats off to Billy Bean for somehow getting Brad Pitt to play him. But yeah, uh, I think you, you kind of answered the question in the middle of uh, what you're saying, where it's like, you know, a good quote unquote, like progressive revolutionary thinking comes first comes from good analysis. If you can reflect uh, the ideas or the problems on the ground, and then give seemingly tangible good solutions for how to fix these problems. It's worth a shot. But if you come Yeah, if you just come in uh, from the rafters top down, just be like, I know how this shit works. Here's how we're going to do it. Then yeah, you're, you're coming down like a tyrant. But if you're consulting with the people who are actually working on the ground and the people who study this stuff and start to synthesize it and create new ideas from it, then I would say that would at least give you a better chance. I mean, people have still failed even at that, but it would at least feel like a more, for lack of a better word, a democratic way of doing it. And it it also seems important to point out that in this particular case, like Billy Bean had started off, you know, in the scouting office and worked his way up 
over you know a decade and a half to that general manager position and at that point his predecessor had already implemented saber metrics had already even pointed out on base percentage as like the go-to kind of you know north star statistic and billy bean just had this weird outlandish personality where he had the he had the lack of decorum to actually be a dictator and take his predecessor's ideas and actually put them to and actually full ass them, you know, for once. Um, so I, I don't know, to, to me, Billy Bean is like a, a really good example of someone doing that the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause in reality, like you said, like he didn't like completely tear the team apart and rebuild it again. Like he definitely reworked some parts of the team, but he kept a very firm core in, in the real 2002 Oakland A's. So yeah, it's kind of like the, where the movie fails to give a better picture, reality sort of uh, fills in those gaps that actually are instructive. But here's what I would say. Is that something to be applauded necessarily? Only if it works. <laughs> yeah, it's the old, like, history will absolve me thing. That, that, yeah, that is, yeah. I guess that is maybe the crux. It's but just, the Oakland A's are, like, in poverty right now and ha- still haven't won a series, and... Billy Bean is like, you know, minority owner of the team and running it further into the ground. So I guess no. Yeah, it's hard to say. Like, yeah, do we consider Moneyball and Billy Bean and uh, the whole experiment? It's a success in and I think they did a good job of that, of showing that it's like it's not a success in specifically the Oakland days. Like they haven't won a World Series. That's why I did it. But it is a success in that the idea that the Oakland uh, A's have were kind of a guinea pig for ha- like now every organization they have to use it. If they don't use it, they're behind. Um, you know, it's the 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 quick line Brad Pitt puts in there in the middle is like adapt or die. And now this is like the gold standard of you have to adopt this ideology. I'll actually I'll be super curious to see what the legacy of Billy Bean is compared to. So I'll quickly segue into my if I may, into my own experience with, like I mentioned earlier, so I played for the Houston Astros for a long time. And basically, long story short, there was a NASA guy and there's a couple other smart guys, but they wrote algorithms to evaluate pitches and batting proficiency, we'll say. Um, and a few other things, and it's not it's not necessarily clear to me that Billy Bean and his experience were revolutionary. It could have been the case that they were tangentially, mm. you know, developed in other organizations. So, like, we're we're kind of like fixating on this one, you know, dramatic outbreak of success, but as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of luck involved in baseball. So like winning 20 games in a row is lucky. Yeah. There's, there's no way around that. It is lucky. There is, there is absolutely a case like a bad team is not winning 20 games, but a good team is going to require a decent amount of luck to actually do that. And I don't know, there's, as far as I understand it, there is a the paradigm to win big, and what I'll quickly I'll quickly caveat like you know into the movie, 
Billy's still trying to win his last game. The reality is you get paid to like, you get paid to make like, you know, make the playoffs and so on. But ultimately you're trying to win the world series. Like that's the whole point of sports. And I'm unconvinced that anything like represented in this movie or the upswell of Moneyball that is going to actually lead to anything genuinely revolutionary in the sport. My experience is that you have you have a few people that were getting super like way into the weeds with the math stuff and like helping players, you know, develop certain skills and so on. And that's good. However, that's always going to, there's always going to be a tension there. Like people, we, I mean, we were talking about it earlier, but there's not a good like framework to introduce like advanced stats to these specific employees, even in today's game. So, so they'll, they'll pluck players that, you know, fit a certain mold, but they won't actually, I'm not sure that people understand exactly what's going on under the hood. And I only mention this because, you know, we're getting into some of the, some of the specifics about like how the sports work, how the sport works or whatever. The, the reality is that the, the sport is still in flux in a lot of ways. There is this like overarching theme of like, we're getting very much more math heavy where you need to, you need to fit this certain archetype much more so. However, there's no, there's no limits. There's no there's no borders on exactly how we want to think about this. Yeah, and I think uh, what you're talking about with the 20 games in a row being luck, and you know the movie kind of sort of tying it to the success of the Moneyball idea and sabermetrics, uh, which is you know what's backing Moneyball is is our you know inherent need as human beings, which is why we like sports and I guess sports movies is to narrativize data. Uh, so to take the 20 wins and suddenly tell a bigger story with it, or even their slow start and to tell a bigger story with it and, and uh, tie th this, you know, these raw numbers and these, what could be just random facts and data and like trying to say something of value with it, where like you're saying, it's like trying to take all these disparate things about, uh, an individual, whether it's uh, an athlete or an actor or an accountant or anything, and say, because they have these attributes, that means that we can tell a story and and uh, understand it and say that these attributes equal success in the particular way that we want to see. Um, and I think, yeah, Moneyball kind of slips into that a little bit. And it's, it, you know, it's a kind of thinking that human beings do all the time. And this is literally narrative fiction. So of course, they're going to have to do that a little bit. But it, it is interesting to see how there's a lot of people talking about things happening and trying to explain it with a nice tight bow throughout the entire movie. And then the movie kind of does it itself, even though it's critiquing people for doing the same exact thing throughout the whole film. But yeah, that, I mean, we've banged on enough about uh, baseball and and uh, Billy and all that. Uh, Jared, uh, since you're the you're the resident, uh, I know how movies are made, boy. I know this movie isn't exactly like super flashy stylistically. There's a couple of like montages I thought were really cool, like especially the streak I thought was an interesting way and the way they used 
uh, documentary footage I thought was an mm-hmm. interesting little flair. But yeah, just general uh, commentary on the craft of this one that stuck out to you. Well, I think it's very telling that we've spent all of this time digging really deeply into the broader themes to how they apply to the real world in a in a grander sense. This is a very workmanlike movie. Just it's not flashy. It's really competently made. What I will say, I thought it was pretty f- I, I think it's really fun almost stunt casting. That like if you look back to 2011, this was really Jonah Hill's first mm. movie outside of just the comedy realm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it, it's pretty cool, like a pretty cool meta narrative to see Jonah Hill as this outsider go into like a, a foreign world, not being taken seriously, and then turning in like an exemplary performance in this new world. Like yeah, that's um, that's just really cool stunt casting, and that goes down that goes down the line to a lot of the other actors in it, who uh, we've we've pointed out a few times that one scout who's the most vocal of the old men who ends up you know getting into that confrontation with Billy in the halls. That guy, I forget his name, but he he's someone who has worked closely with Billy Bean in his life and hates Billy Bean. <laughs> really like um, an actual yeah. rival yep i i think just the the con- like connecting the world of the filmmaking itself to the like the, some of the themes and some of the, the the real life narrative and mirroring them in certain ways is goes back to that testament of bennett miller being this documentarian and you know, understanding like you know, that driving narrative of interesting real life subjects from a uh, just like from a, a an actual like kind of cinematography choice or technical choice that he does this thing in this movie that is a documentary trick, and you don't see it a lot in um, like major motion pictures, but it to an almost distracting degree, he does this thing over and over again where he puts emphasis on like a character's internal state or an epiphany they're having or some sort of shift in tone by framing them in like a, like a a medium shot and then digitally zooming in to like their face or their hands or like something else, not, not actually pushing in with the camera or setting up a new shot, but literally just taking the same shot and digitally zooming into a smaller portion of it, Mm. which is like, one of the oldest documentary tricks in the book when you're interviewing a subject and you just have a static camera on a tripod capturing them. And then in the edit, you go in and like dramatically like zoom in on their face when they say like the big reveal, this movie does it. And I think subconsciously some viewers would trust it more as being real life because they've been trained to see that only in documentaries. Yeah. Like the, the vernacular, think, uh, yeah. Expresses. That. And I, I think, I think that's, that's pretty, a pretty fun, just technical trick. There's not a lot of it. I think that's the flashiest or most unique thing that I could think of about this movie as far as the filmmaking itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, with the, with the Jonah Hill of it all, which we, we haven't mentioned like Jonah Hill's really funny in this. Oh yeah. Like it's definitely a great bridge for him to go from like pure comedy, super bad, like kind of, you know, crude humor type to, you know, two like two years later, he's working with Martin Scorsese in Wolf of Wall Street, 
uh, Druid mentioned, like even in the, the stuff like Moneyball, and then I think he's in Django Unchained, isn't he? As well, I feel like uh, I remember him in that. Um, so he goes from this to like immediately working with Tarantino and Scorsese, and taking, I mean, to get these huge, these high profile roles, he was taking big pay cuts, and now he's like, I mean, which I would call Jonah Hill an A list actor now. I don't know about you guys. Uh, he if he isn't now he was in the 2010s yeah yeah for sure so that uh we've i think we've uh successfully milked this one for all it's worth um i'm actually a little surprised for a movie like you were saying it's like technically it's pretty by the numbers um so i remember when i was thinking about this movie i, I kind of only put it on because it's like oh you know i really don't like baseball movies generally and this is kind of the one exception so let's talk about this um and I'm glad that we could uh, we could pull quite a bit out of it. Um, so go once again, we'll go round the horn, all three bases. Uh, I'm only gonna do one recommendation because there's three of us. Um, uh, Jared, what would you recommend as a good double feature with Moneyball? Yeah, I recommend that you you get two screens in front of you, and on one screen you start the blind side, <laughs> and on the other screen you start the big short, and you watch them. <laughs> you sync them up and watch them at the same time to achieve a sort of dark side of the moon wizard of Oz effect. <laughs> Just try and, uh, if you put them close enough on a split screen, eventually they'll have a baby and it's called Moneyball. Yeah. <laughs> so Drew, what's on your, uh, double feature with Moneyball or wait, Drew, tell the room what you did double feature with Moneyball. I wish I had double featured anything because I mean, I feel like I'm the heel here. I have, I just have so many criticisms for, <laughs> for sports movies, broadly speaking. I would just say it's interesting to hear how sports are manifest on the big screen, and in general, I'll even, I'll even go so far as to say that I think it should be trouble with the curve for <laughs> for a double feature here, just because I do think it is a little bit. Ba- anti-moneyball it's literally doing the opposite you know dramatic effect it's it's saying clint eastwood is the aging scout that is somehow in tune to the the spirit of the game more so than any front office schmuck could ever understand there nothing deep there but it's just Interesting dichotomy there, I would say. <laughs> yeah, it's a good like like a really really conservative response to uh, Moneyball, which, like I said, it came out like a year or two afterward. So I was thinking more on the thematic side of like what's a movie that looks in the entertainment industry, that looks in how the economy influ- influences the entertainment industry, and like all the weird wonky shit that can go on. So I'm choosing 1976 Network for a double feature with Moneyball. Because, yeah, that's definitely one that, like, that really gets in the nitty-gritty of, like, yeah, there's, like, a lot of entertainment and artistry and culture going on here in this industry. But at the end of the day, this is about cold, hard numbers, cold, hard dollars, and uh, the the weird, wonky shit that can uh, do to human beings when put into that situation. Where this movie, I think, understands a little bit better than Moneyball when you get a little bit too about your dollars and cents and numbers. Okay, I think we've about analyzed this one to death at this point, so we're we're going to wrap it up and let the the good uh, seven or eight people out there listening to the podcast get back to their day. Uh, so for this edition of The Concessions, I'm Dan. I'm Jared. And I'm Drew. And it's hard not to get romantic about movie podcasts.
I'm just a little bit caught in the middle. Life is a maze and love is a riddle. I don't know where to go, can't do it alone. I've tried and I don't know why. I'm just a little girl lost in the moment. I'm so scared, but I don't show it. I can't figure it out. It's hanging me down, I know. I've got to let it go and just enjoy the show. Slow it down, make it stop, or else my heart is going to pop. Cause it's too much, yeah, it's a lot to be something I'm not. I'm full out of love, and I just can't get enough. I'm just a little bit caught in the middle. Life is a maze. And love is a riddle. I don't know where to go. Can't do it alone. I've tried, and I don't know why. I'm just a little girl lost in the moment. I'm so scared, but I don't show it. I can't figure it out. It's bringing me down. I know I've got to let it go and just enjoy the show. Dum de dum. Da dum dee dum. Just enjoy the show. You're such a loser, Dad. You're such a loser, Dad. You're such a loser, Dad. Just enjoy the show. You're such a loser, Dad. You're such a loser, Dad. You're such a loser, Dad. Just enjoy the show.